Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Good morning, and welcome to Redeemer. Um, my name is Chandler Rowland. I'm the RUF campus minister at Carson Newman University. And um, yeah, if you're familiar with Redeemer, I'm obviously not Sean. And um, he's one of the few people that I kind of regularly feel short around. Um, but uh, normally Sean starts off the service explaining all the different things you could be doing in Knoxville and thanking you for being here. I am certainly thankful that you're here. I don't know anything that's going on in Knoxville because we don't live here. But um, one of the things that, that's really cool that, that Sean takes special care to do uh, every Sunday morning is to explain what Redeemer is as a church and, and, and as a mission. And one of the things that, um, that Redeemer has done uh, is serve not just Knoxville, um, not just this corner of Urban and University Knoxville, as he likes to point out. Um, you haven't just served that, you've served all of East Tennessee. And one of the ways that you've done that is by uh, about 15 years ago, uh, coming up with an idea and planning RUF at Carson Newman. And uh, so you guys planted us, you support us very generously, and we're so thankful for that. And so um, I, I want to say thank you and, and also just kind of explain um, that's, uh, that's who we are. And, and we're here because um, the pastors at Redeemer thought there should be RUF at Carson Newman. So thank you. Um, our reading this morning comes from uh, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 26. So let's turn our attention now uh, to the reading of God's word. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late, and he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. 
And as he was reaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you curse has, has withered. And Jesus answered him, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that, what he sa- that which he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless this reading of your word. Lord, we ask that you would uh, do as you have promised and not allow it to return void. Lord, and would you, uh, this morning, as I attempt to uh, to preach, to explain your word. Lord, would you, Lord, please strike a straight blow with the crooked stick. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a couple of weeks ago, um, my wife and I were, were doing the thing that just kind of becomes like normal ritual. We were browsing Netflix, trying to find something to watch. And we came across this uh, true, true crime documentary called Murder Among the Mormons. And I was, I was like, hey, Leah, do you, do you want to watch this? And she was like, there's nothing about this that sounds interesting to me. Um, and so I knew that coming up, I was going to have some time at home alone. Um, so didn't make her watch it. Um, and I watched it last week and, uh, it, this is a fascinating story. Um, I, I love, um, I love true crime stuff. Um, I don't, I don't know what that says about me, but, um, it's this, it's this incredible story that, it, that, that, that happened in the 1980s in ni- 1985. And, um, there was this guy named Mark Hoffman. And he had a knack for finding these very rare, um, very historic documents that, that especially pertain to the Mormon church. And so he would, he would find these documents. Uh, one of them was, um, a, I believe, a letter from Joseph Smith. Uh, one of them was a, a letter from um, Lucy Harris, one of the first prophet's uh, wives. And, uh, and so he would find these documents and then sell them to the church for tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, which even today, that's a lot of money, but even, even in the 80s, it was, you know, it was a lot. Um, so, so, he, so he found this really, really, really rare document. And right as he was about to sell it, three bombs went off, like a day or two before the sale was supposed to happen. And it, and it killed two people. And the third person at the bomb injured was Mark Hoffman himself. And so everybody is panicking to try to figure out what is going on, what is happening here. And through the course of the investigation into the bombs, it started to look like that maybe Mark Hoffman himself had planted the bombs. And as the question started to rise, why would he do this? Uh, they began to look into these documents that he was selling for all this money. And it turns out that he was, he was faking them. He wasn't, it wasn't even a counterfeit. It wasn't even a, it wasn't even a copy of an original. It was just making something up and selling it as, as, um, as legitimate. And, and all of these, all of these uh, people who, whose jobs were to determine fakes, uh, he was fooling all of them and uh, making a lot of money off of it. But one thing that, that he started to notice 
what kind of tipped them off was this one letter that he had sold. They went back and started to look at it, and they realized that the ink on the paper was beginning to crack. And the forensic um, scientists or law enforcement or whatever, I don't know what you call them, but whatever they, they were, they, they, they knew, they looked, they were like, the ink that was original to that time didn't crack as it got older. And so they began to unravel what had really been going on um, simply because this ink started to crack. And so the, as we've already mentioned, y'all, it's, it's Holy Week this week. That we are celebrating uh, the week leading up to Easter. And today is Palm Sunday. It's the day on the church calendar where you remember Jesus entering into Jerusalem to suffer under Pontius Pilate, to be crucified, to die, to be buried, and to rise again on the third day. And what I think is happening in Mark 11, Jesus is entering triumphantly. He is uh, teaching a parable on this fig tree. He's cleansing the temple I think what Jesus is doing is he is holding up real religion. He is holding up true faith and comparing it to the fake. He is exposing false religion in the temple, and it's only by seeing and studying the real thing that we can find the counterfeit, the fake. So what, what I think that is happening here, and, and I, I love that as, as you guys have been walking through uh, the gospel of Mark, Sean's been using um, the idea of, of the false witness or the independability of, of whatever and comparing it to the true witness and the true dependability of Jesus. And so I want us to look at this under these, uh, these uh, headers of the false witness of false religion and the true witness of Jesus. And so these verses expose false religion. They do so by showing us the real thing, the true king who comes to disrupt our false religion and to point us and draw us to himself. So the first thing, the false witness of false religion. And there are three images in these verses that I want us to to really pay attention to. The first image is the image of the tree. Um, And I think if we're going to really understand and unlock this passage, we have to understand what Jesus is doing with the tree. So the first thing is that um, Mark is using this, this literary technique that we, uh, we went to seminary to learn the name of this very official and very technical term um, called sandwiching. Um, and so, and so, so, what, so what Mark would do, and, and as is common to, to literature like this, is you would take something and then you would explain something and then you would take the original thing to explain it. So it's like a, like a truth sandwich like all right there and neatly compact and and easy to eat. Um, And so Jesus is using this fig tree, temple fig tree, to explain something about the temple. So what you want to go back and and, and ask is, what is this, what are these two pieces of parable bread teaching us about the true meat? Um, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Um, But but, but we, we, we get this image of the fig tree and, and it, and it begins to raise some questions. And, and, and actually, as I was studying this, I found this is a, a, pretty, a pretty big hang-up for a lot of people. But, but we see, to kind, of, to kind of go back over the story real quick, in verses 12 through 14, Jesus is on his way back to Jerusalem, and he's hungry. And so he sees this tree. And he comes upon the tree, and it was leafy. So he he's comes up to think there's going to be food on it. We found nothing but leaves. But Mark does this little thing where he tells us it was not the season for figs. So we might read that and think, what's going on there? Then he, then he goes to the temple, and he cleanses it, and then he comes back, 
And we see that the fig tree had withered away to its roots. And Peter is amazed by this. And then Jesus kind of starts to spout off what can, I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, sounds just like kind of religious platitudes about faith and prayer and forgiveness. But, but like I said, this passage has, has, has kind of been a stumbling block for people. Bertrand Russell accused Jesus of uh, what he calls vindictive fury here. That this tree, Mark tells us, was not in season. And so, uh, of course, it wouldn't be producing fruit. And so, of course, this is Jesus being a, a, petty, uh, a petty deity cursing this tree. He, he wrote this. He said, I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history because of a tree. Even Christian scholars who've wrestled with this, that um, one, one commentator says, it is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper for the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more usefully expended in forcing a crop of figs out of season. As it stands, it is simply incredible. And again, if we're looking at this with kind of our understanding of what's going on, it kind of seemed like fair assessments. Mark takes special care to tell us it was not the season for figs. And surely this man, the son of God, the one for whom and by whom all things were created, the one who in the beginning was with God and was, what, and was God, surely this man would possess a basic understanding of botany to say that, of course, a tree is not going to produce fruit in a season that's not supposed to produce fruit. And obviously, Jesus understands this. Obviously, Jesus probably knows some, fig, some things about fig trees that Bertrand Russell didn't understand. See, and that I didn't know. I didn't know anything about, you know, I don't know anything about fig trees. Um, if you told me this was, there was a fig tree right in front of me, I would, sure, of course, I, I don't know what a fig tree looks like. But we do know that fig trees produce figs from mid-August to mid-October. That's the fig growing season. But after they finish producing for the season, they sprout buds that grow into what's known as pagum. And then the pagum sprout leaves, and locals to this area would have known that the pagum was good to eat, that, that you could go, and even not in season, you could find one of these, uh, these buds and eat it and, and have, a, have a good snack. And so to walk up and to see leaves on the tree, Jesus reasonably could have expected to have found food. But instead, he found nothing. And so this tree was giving off the image of life, but it was dead. But another question that we have to ask is, when is a fig tree not just a fig tree? And if you go back to the prophetic books of the Old Testament, the fig tree was often used as a symbol for Israel. The prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Joel, and Micah all use it as a symbol of the nation of Israel. Jeremiah 8.13 says there will be no figs on the tree and their leaves will wither. In Luke 13, Jesus tells a parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And so what this means is that Jesus is using the fig tree as an example to show what the true heart condition of what was happening in the temple really was. And commentators point out this is the only miracle of destruction in the Gospels. That the leafy fig tree, with all its promise of fruit, is as deceptive as the temple, which despite its religious commerce and activity is really an outlaw's hideout. 
The curse of the fig tree is a symbol of God's judgment of the temple. And so then we have to ask, what is Jesus trying to show us about what was happening in the temple? And if you're like me and you grew up in the, the weird evangelical world that is like the deep south, like I'm, I'm from Mississippi, so kind of steeped in it, uh, this is one of the greatest hits, right? This is one of Jesus' greatest hits that like it's not, like you don't have to be in church very long before you hear about Jesus coming in and, and cleansing the temple. And right, our, our uh, you know, conservatives tend to look at this and be like, this is Jesus removing all of the theological impurity and, and getting everything out. And, and our liberal friends, or they're kind of more of like, this is Jesus like driving out all the people who em- embrace capitalism and you know, oppress the poor and all this kind of stuff. And, and the truth is, they're, they're probably both kind of right. But um, we kind of get this image of, of Jesus showing up uh, in a room about this size, you know, maybe there's some, uh, maybe there's some, some chaos, it's loud, but, uh, but Jesus comes and he flips the table over and everybody stops. It's that kind of record scratch moment where, uh, you know, hey, this is me, you're probably wondering how I got here, like that kind of thing. Um, and and, and I, remember, I remember very vividly, uh, one time when I was in middle school, um, we, were at, uh, we were at church, it was a Wednesday night, um, kind of a normal Wednesday night service. There was this big room that uh, the, the youths could congregate in. Um, it's a very old way of saying that, but um, there was this big room that you could just kind of go and hang out and play games and talk and see your friends and do that kind of stuff. And so everybody's kind of in this room and we're hanging out, we're having a good time. People were, um, they were talking and playing games and, and generally just doing things that middle schoolers did. And, and one of the dads from the youth group uh, came in and just absolutely lost his mind at what he was seeing. I mean, there were, there were kids sitting on tables, they were playing cards, and they were talking about PG-13 movies at church. And for reference, the movie was Clueless. So just to date me, I guess. And he told us this was God's house, and we were profaning the sacred space by, by, by playing cards in God's house. You just could not believe it. And then the weirdest flex and the whole thing was when he told us that if, that if he, we had a problem with what he was saying, uh, we could tell our parents and they could look him up in the phone book and call him and then proceeded to about five times very slowly spell out his name, which was not a complicated name to spell. But I have no doubt to this day, I have no doubt that in his mind, this was a Jesus cleansing the temple moment. Here is this pure defender of good religion, driving all the false religion out, cleansing the, out the den of degenerate robbers. And I, I, I tell you that story to say, like, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's not what Jesus is going for here. Because to understand the significance of what Jesus is doing, we've got to grasp both the size and the significance of the temple. So, again, the size of the temple, I've always kind of heard temple and just equated that with with church so like what we kind of imagine like whatever whatever church you grew up in if it was a you know a, a big kind of like mega church or if it was like a small country church or something in between you hear temple and or I heard temple and just kind of associated it with what I so a room about this size and and um and, and that this scene would have occurred there but actually what we know about the temple is that it was massive it had four different divisions. Um, it had the court of Gentiles, it had the court of the women, it had the court of Israel, and it had the Holy of Holies. And each one of those um, things kind of designated who could be there when and, and how and all that kind of stuff. 
And so this event happens in the court of Gentiles. And this was a huge space. It spanned 35 acres. It was 500 yards long and 325 yards wide. Though obviously pretty big. And and, and the ancient Jewish historian Josephus uh, wrote that one year during the Passover week, 255,000 sheep were sold and slaughtered in the temple. 255,000 sheep. Like, that's a lot of sheep that fit into this place. Like, it's a big, massive place. And so it's likely that Jesus flipping the tables would have been like if you go to the mall over here and like somebody flips over the cell phone kiosk on the other end of the mall, like you might hear about it. Like maybe you notice some of the commotion, but you know, the food court's not going to stop. I don't, I don't know the layout of the mall that well. So just imagine with me. This is a massive place. But the second thing is the significance of the temple because it was important for more than its size. That the temple was the focal point of Israel's religion. The Holy of Holies was where God lived. That this was God's house. This was where uh, once a year the, um, the, uh, the high priest could go in and make sacrifices for the sins of the people. So that was at the center of it. And then the court of Israelites was, was the place where uh, circumcised Jewish males could go and they could worship. The court of women was where uh, Jewish women could go and they could worship. And then the court of Gentiles was the place that everybody who wasn't Jewish could go and worship God. That the temple was set up to be a place, as Jesus says, that the nations would be drawn to. And Tim Keller compares the temple to the Garden of Eden. And if you go back and look, like if you read through um, Exodus or in some of the different places, like where they're describing the tabernacle or how the temple is supposed to be built, um, you, you get like a million chapters on how detailed this place is supposed to be. It's like, it kind of feels like overkill, but they're doing something really important with it because this is the place where God, God dwelt in the same way that the Garden of Eden was where God dwelt at the beginning of creation. The garden was paradise. There was no death. There was no deformity. There was no evil. There was no imperfection that existed there. This was a, a, a place of peace, of human flourishing, of fulfillment, of joy and bliss. But we know from Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They decided that what they wanted to do was more important than what God had said. And so God had to kick them out. And to kick them out of the garden, when he did, he placed these angels with flaming swords at the entrance. So that no, uh, no man or woman could ever go in again. But the temple was the place that provided that relief. The temple was the place where man could go, both in person and via a representative. The the representative went into the Holy of Holies, but everybody else could go into the presence of God in the temple. And so on the surface, we see with all this buying and selling and the pigeons and the sheep and everything else, we see that the temple was operating as it was supposed to. But Tim Keller says, again, he says, Jesus was returning to a place that was very religiously busy, just like most churches are. There are tasks, committees, noise, people coming and going, lots of transactions. But the busyness contained no spirituality. Nobody was actually praying. So we see that in their zeal for performing the externals of religion, they were forcing out any form of true spirituality. But the falseness of this religion did not just stop at the external performance of the temple. Jesus says, is it not written that my house 
shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And he's quoting from Isaiah 56, which is this beautiful prophecy in Isaiah that, um, that when God's servant finally comes, that all of the nations, not just ethnic Israel, not just the Jews, not just the circumcised Israelite men or the, the Israelite women, but all of the nations would be drawn to the temple to be in the presence of God, that Israel and the temple were supposed to be a light for the nations. But by allowing this commerce to bleed into and take over the court of the Gentiles, the Israelites, and specifically the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, which were kind of the religious establishment of the day, they had all but forced the Gentiles out of public worship. They'd excluded them from the public worship of God. And so not only was there little to no spiritual life happening among the Israelites themselves, they were blocking the nations, the people that the temple was supposed to attract. They were blocking them from true worship. But the last image that we have to look at is, uh, is the crowd, right? We go back to the first part of this passage, the, the actual triumphal entry. See, Mark is a little bit more subtle with his messianic proclamations here, um, but he is making them. Um, but it's, it's significant that whatever is going on with the triumphal entry, we have to see that the people get really excited about Jesus coming into Jerusalem. They're, they're dancing before him, they're singing after him, they're laying their cloaks on the ground, they're waving uh, palm branches, and, and, then, and then they just stop. It's just over. And Jesus goes to the temple and looks around, and then he, and then he leaves. And it's kind, of, it's kind of a weird scene, if you think about it. Like, honestly, I, I get the image from um, the first Madagascar movie where, you know, the penguins, like, their whole plot is to, like, steal the ship and go to Antarctica so they can see it. And they get there, and they're like, well, that's disappointing. And they just turn the ship around and leave. Like, that's kind of what I see when I see this passage. It's like, they, they get all excited, and here's Jesus. Here's the true king. He's going to take over. He's going to restore Jerusalem. And he goes to the temple disappointing (laughs) see what i think mark is doing is he's warning against mistaking our enthusiasm for faith and popularity for discipleship jesus is not confessed in pomp and circumstance but only at the cross and so here's the point of all this this is what the 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 fickleness of the crowd shows the the deadness of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple that the temple was on the surface brimming with life and activity it looked like a place where religion was happening where people were worshiping god but jesus's entry shows that the true king had come to expose this rotten core of false religion the crowd quickly dissipated the false worship in the temple had merely been disrupted not stopped and the tree produced no fruit So in order for Jesus to show the people in his day their need for him, he had to show them that their hope was placed in the wrong thing. You know, he exposes that false religion in us too because we're really good at looking like we're alive. We're really good at looking like we follow the things that are alive and life-giving. And there was a really good, uh, really interesting opinion piece in the New York Times a few weeks ago called The Empty Religions of Instagram by uh, a woman named Lee Stein. 
Um, and she's, she's apparently written a novel called Self-Care, which is a satire of the wellness industry and influencer culture, so I really want to read it. Um, but, uh, but in this piece, she documents uh, this, this, group of, uh, this group of people that we've come to call the nuns. The nuns are the 22% of millennials who do not identify with any particular religion. And I think that number's only going to get higher as um, Gen Z kind of grows up and these kinds of things. But many people have taken that to mean that 22% of millennials are not religious. But Stein actually says that that's wrong. She says this. She says, many millennials who have turned their backs on religious tradition because it isn't sufficiently diverse or inclusive have found alternative scripture online. Our new belief system is a blend of left-wing political orthodoxy, intersectional feminism, self-optimization, therapy, wellness, astrology, and Dolly Parton. (laughs) And we found a different kind of clergy, personal growth influencers, who offer nuns like us permission, validation, and community on demand at a time when it's nearly impossible to share communion in person. We don't even have to put down our phones. So what she's saying is that even though this group of nuns don't follow any organized religion in the way that people who would take the time to come to church on Sunday morning might recognize, they're still incredibly religious. She goes on to say, I've hardly prayed to God since I was a teenager, but the pandemic has cracked open inside me a profound yearning for reverence, humility, and awe. I have an overdraft on my outrage account. I want moral authority from someone who isn't shilling a memoir or calling out her enemies on social media for clout. And what she's doing is she's realizing the need for something more. She's realizing that all the external signs of life and engagement and community, indeed the external trappings of religious practice, are not enough. And she says this in her next to last paragraph, which I think is the point of her whole, of her whole um, opinion piece. Says there is a chasm between the vast scope of our needs and what influencers can provide. We're looking for guidance in the wrong places. Instead of helping us to engage with our most important questions, our screen might be distracting us from them. Maybe we actually need to go to something like church. You know, I think what she's saying, and you can change out influencers for politicians or ideologies or uh, our what our families can provide, what our jobs can provide, what our grades can provide, what our body image, whatever. You can change that out with just about anything because she's touching on something that's very important. The social media outlets do so much of what the temple did. They give us a sense of life and activity. And we can kind of display our righteousness for everybody to see with the right hashtag or the right, um, the right platitude or whatever. But ultimately, these things distract us from asking the big questions about life. And it leaves us wanting. And like we just said, that's a parable for so many other things. Anything that we love and follow and pursue and tie ourselves up into create all of the external trappings of life, of viability and hope, but they really don't produce anything. It's just leafy growth that doesn't sustain anything. And so it's against that backdrop that we see this true witness of Jesus. And he takes all of this head on. That his entry is messianic. He does not enter Jerusalem as an unknowing victim 
but with the same foreknowledge and sovereignty with which he traveled along the way. Jesus knew what he was walking into. And while the crowd probably did not grasp the full significance of what was happening, it is unmistakable to the careful observer. Zechariah 9.9, which we read in our call to worship, says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. So in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the uh, short-lived enthusiasm, in the midst of false religion, in the midst of dead trees that produce nothing, here is your king. Here is the Messiah. That he has come in humility and he has come to confront your false religion, my false religion. He has come to overturn the sacrificial system to show that he himself would be the true once and for all sacrifice. You see, his destination was the temple, which the Israelites thought the Messiah would come and purge from all outside influence, would come and purge from the effect of the Gentiles. But what he was coming to do was to open the door for the Gentiles, for the nations, for us. But we also see that this is not a Messiah, this is not a king that is content to be distant from his people. This is one who is among them. This is one who is with them. There's something so important about being present with people. If the last year has taught us anything, is that Zoom cannot take the place of actual person-to-person with each other contact. I'm, I'm happy we had it, but it doesn't, it doesn't replace the connection And this is what Jesus is doing. There is something so essential about this, that Jesus was always touching lepers. He was always eating with tax collectors. He was even taking the time to talk with the Pharisees. And this passage is no different, that here he is among the people, with the people, teaching the people, And if we look at Luke's account of this story, we actually see that when Jesus saw Jerusalem, he saw what was going on, he saw this false enthusiasm, he saw the false worship in the temple, that Jesus wept. That he hurt with us. He hurt for us. He hurt because of us. He sees their false religion. He sees the things that are killing them. He sees our false religion. He sees the things that are killing us. And he is not content to leave us in it. He is not content to let us continue continue on in shallow enthusiasm or religious practice that keeps others out. He is not content to let us carry on as if we are full of life. But instead he confronts us and disrupts us and calls us to himself. And so Jesus, as the true witness, produces fruit in our lives. You know, we could take a full, a full morning, probably a full series on just the verses in 23 through 25. But Jesus says here that, that coming in contact with the true king, that loving the Messiah, that letting him change your life, that is true religion. That this is true religion based on, centered around and in tune with the person and the work, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is what produces faith. To meet him is to produce faith. 
It produces prayer. It produces forgiveness. You see, false religion produces busyness and exhaustion and posturing. And these things look really good. It looks good to look busy. It's a virtue in our society. It looks good to be tired. And it looks good to be number one. But in the presence of the king, these things are useless leafy growth. Jesus' call is for us to have faith in God, not in our righteousness, not in our busyness, not in the temple, not in the sacrifices, but in God. In this God, the God who provides a way beyond our righteousness, beyond our outrage, beyond our busyness. And when he tells us that whatever we ask in prayer we already have, it's because we already have it. In the person, in the work of Jesus Christ, we have everything that we need. So we pray because he invites us to talk to him. We forgive because he has forgiven us. We understand the great forgiveness that Jesus has secured for us. And so as we look at all this, we have to respond to it. We have to do something with it. And interestingly, the only response that we get in this passage is the response of the priests and the scribes. And their response is to kill him. Tim Keller again says this, there is a final irony to all of this. Jesus, who unites such apparent extremes of character into such an integrated and balanced whole, demands an extreme response from every one of us. He forces our hand at every turn in the story. This man who throws open the gates of his kingdom to everyone then warns the most devout insiders that their standing in the kingdom is in jeopardy without fruitfulness, is forever closing down our options. The man who can be weakened by a touch on his way to bring a little girl back from the dead is a man you dare not tear your eyes from. He is both the rest and the storm, both the victim and the wielder of the flaming sword, and you must accept him or reject him on the basis of both. Either you'll have to kill him or you'll have to crown him. The one thing that you cannot do is just say, what an interesting guy. Those teachers of the law who began plotting to kill Jesus at the end of this episode in the temple, they may have been dead wrong about him, but their reaction makes perfect sense. His false religion produces busyness and the desperate need to justify ourselves. It boasts and it fights desperately to produce its own righteousness. And when that righteousness gets confronted, we will kill to keep it. Jesus produces faith and humility. He invites us to commune with him, to speak to him. And he entered Jerusalem that week, again, not as an unsuspecting victim, but as the sovereign king of everything, knowing and counting his joy that which was set before him. You see, true religion is the very undoing of death itself through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I love this, and we'll, we'll, we'll go to the table with this. But this is from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Aslan says, It means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery, was killed in a traitor's stead. The table would crack, and death itself 
would start working backwards. And we come to the table with that. That this meal that is prepared before us, to eat this meal is to confess that we bow our knee to him. That we acknowledge our false religion to be just that, false. And to feast upon his mercy, his grace, and his sacrifice for us. To eat this meal is to acknowledge that at this table and only at this table, may all the nations come and worship truly and freely, and that by his blood spilled and his body broken is the promise fulfilled that his house will be called a house of prayer. And so with that, we turn to the table. I want to invite you to please rise and lift up your hearts.